32 counties united by people. My name is Una and this is United Ireland. Every week in United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. We are an independent podcast, which means we need your support. If you like what you hear and can spare three euro a month, go to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland and pay for this podcast. Um, I've been away for a long time uh, from this podcast for over a month. So Andrea has obviously been doing a stellar job, but this week she's away. So I'm back uh, in at the deep end solo. I did miss the podcast, I have to say. Uh, Andrea's obviously doing a stellar job. Um, but uh, next week um, we'll be back as a twosome, um, which is great news for us, I guess, and hopefully for you. But this week we're talking about how one of the great immovable pillars in Ireland's economy, um, our holy and precious 12.5 corporate tax rate, is in fact changing. What impact will this have on Ireland? And how has something so entrenched uh, begun to change? We'll be joined by Aidan O'Regan to talk tax, ethics and Ireland Inc. But first, it's the State of the Nation. So a lot of people uh, are understandably quite angry at the double whammy of quote-unquote development in Dublin this week. Um, First of all, a proposed hotel at the edge, the Liffey end of um, Temple Bar that would take up kind of uh, one side of Merchant's Arch and uh, the other being the proposed development of a hotel. (laughs) I think you can uh, spot a trend here. Um, at the Cobblestone Pub in Smithfield, which is obviously a really, really important cultural space. And uh, it's it's really interesting to me, I guess, because I've been writing about the amenities crisis in Dublin for so long and how it's been kind of bleeding out to the suburbs as well. Um, obviously, this is not unique uh, to Dublin either. Um, Galway's having a really difficult time with the um, kind of closure of nightclubs and stuff like that. But what I think is happening, and I guess the the pandemic has instigated some of this as well. Like, first of all, obviously this huge discontent about this kind of development, the people who live in the city don't really want and the uh, erosion of amenities, but also there's so much engagement, there's public engagement on it. Um, and I think that even though the temperature rising can often feel uh, a bit much, that I suppose there are positives to be taken from that. There, are, There's been a petition, two petitions, I think, set up, one for uh, Merchant's Arch, one for the Cobblestone. But really all of this is rooted in, in, in land speculation. You know, it's so tied to the housing crisis that basically you have this situation where because what gets built or developed is what can squeeze the most profit out of, you know, the, the square meterage of a site or something, then basically the thing that gets prioritised and the thing that gets through through in this era of, of intense land speculation is the thing that can make the most money per square foot or per square metre, which is why instead of actual housing, we have so much um, student accommodation that's now changing its use to uh, co-living and, and um, short-term rents, as Andrea covered in the podcast last week, and intense hotel development and all those kind of things. So 
I really think that the amenities crisis, which has really been undercovered in, in national media, will start to kind of bubble up um, as much as, as not as much as, but in tandem, I suppose, with the housing crisis because they're both symptoms of land speculation. So that can feel depressing. But again, um, the more people who kind of engage with it, um, who can instigate political will uh, addressing it is a good thing. In the Irish Times poll this week, uh, Sinn Féin opened up a 10 point lead over Fine Gael. Um, there's kind of lots of analysis about how the pandemic bounce has not stayed in the air um, with regards to the government um, and how they dealt with the pandemic. I just think it's like, you know, I found it really interesting about the National Development Plan was launched this week. Um, first of all, the launch looked just kind of sad, like the four lads in this empty stadium throwing a ball around for some reason. Not sure what that has to do with building roads, but um, it's so interesting how this massive plan that they had, I think it's valued this kind of like a vague wish list they have at 165 billion, just sunk like a stone. And, and it's really symptomatic of how the government just can't seem to do anything, launch anything, pitch anything, enact anything that cuts through because of how the housing crisis is really monopolising a lot of people's thought. I mean, obviously the pandemic has as well, but I just think that unless there are radical emergency measures and interventions introduced beyond the kind of housing for all plan, which was launched and and, and things have uh, got worse since then, um, I just don't see how anything can cut through. And I think then obviously, you know, you know, Sinn Féin's popularity is intrinsically linked um, to the housing crisis and people wanting things to be done differently. And all they have to do really is is kind of sit there as opposition and, and hammer government over inaction. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just think it's it's interesting <laughs> what would happen um, if there was an election next month um, or the month after or next year, because I think that ironically, the longer this government lasts, the more unpopular they'll become because people won't see action on housing and because it takes loads of time. But of course, if you introduce like really dramatic rent freezes right now, that could, that could be a more instantaneous thing. But um, yeah, I just feel like the, the longer this government exists, the more popular Sinn Féin will become. Um, so yeah, that's a, a shaky, shaky poll for a government that can't seem to cut through um, the the massive amount of headspace, uh, the housing, rental, homelessness crisis, and so on. Um, in addition to the pandemic stuff, is is taking up in people's heads. So that is the state of the nation. We are now going to talk one of our favourite topics here, United Ireland, juicy, juicy corporate tax. Now, Ireland's export-led economy, uh, if you believe that, driven by multinationals, has long been underpinned by our insatiable desire to attract foreign direct investment or FDI to bolster our tax intake and our employment. Our corporate tax rate of 12.5% was traditionally seen as essential to preserving our so-called competitive environment for investment. But as discourse around taxes shifted in recent years, and accusations of Ireland being a tax haven have muddied our pure opinion of ourselves. That tax rate may be no more. 
as uh, the government look seems um, likely to capitulate to European and global pressure to get real to the tune of a 15% tax rate. So what impact will this have? We're joined by Aidan Regan from ECD to discuss this issue. First of all, Aidan, many of our listeners will be familiar with you and your work, but what do you do and where does your interest and economic expertise primarily lie? Oh, yeah, good question. So, I mean, I'm, I, I'm an associate professor here in the School of Politics and International Relations. Uh, my background is in, I suppose, the intersection between political science, uh, economics, and, and public affairs and philosophy in many ways. So I have a, uh, I teach key modules here on the political economy of Europe, uh, an undergraduate module on capitalism and democracy. But really my research is focused on comparative and international political economy. And I'm interested in how politics and institutions come together really to produce and explain the variation in various policy outcomes. And more recently, I've been kind of using this framework and research and looking very closely at the politics of wealth and income inequality. And from a global perspective, uh, the issue of the changing nature of global capitalism and multinational enterprises and intangible capital and using kind of tax avoidance and the very complex nature of taxation to as a lens, if you like, to tease out some of the deeper conceptual issues and uh, about what this means ultimately for, for, for democracy uh, more broadly. It's a pretty good explanation for yourself, I have to say. <laughs> um, but let, let's talk about this magic 12.5 number, yeah. um, which has existed for, for a long time. What is the genesis of that corporate tax rate? Yeah, it's good. So I always find it interesting in Ireland when we talk about the 12.5% rate, it's often presented as something that's been around since the foundation of the state and has never changed. And it's this kind of golden egg that nobody can dare touch. But actually the history of corporate tax and the corporate tax regime in Ireland has moved and flowed. And it has mostly changed in response to various reforms that have taken place at the international level and in particular at the European Union level. So in the 50s, um, you know, Irish political elites were very keen uh, to try to encourage uh, more kind of foreign-owned manufacturers to set up in Ireland. Uh, And, you know, at the time... Ireland was really keen to not have British ownership of key assets in Ireland. But once the kind of global geopolitical dynamics changed and the US emerged as really the kind of the global uh, kind of uh, global actor, if you like, in the hierarchy of global capitalism, it was they were the Irish state and the Irish political elites were very open to attracting US investors in particular. So there was in the 50s, for example, there was kind of 100% export tax relief introduced on, on the exports of key manufacturers and that kind of changed the move. But it was really, I think, in the 70s and 80s um, that the Irish state said, look, um, let's 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 kind of think about how to distinguish here between traded and non-traded income. So basically what they did was they gave a tax holiday, they gave a 100% tax exemption for any kind of foreign-owned manufacturers um, at, at 0%. And then they joined the EU. That changed everything. So in 1973, when Ireland joined the EU, basically the EU said, look, you can't be doing this. You can't be giving basically 0% tax relief to foreign owners of manufacturing plants because that's a form of state aid. That's kind of breaking the rules of competition. That's breaking the rules of the single market. So Ireland said, okay, well, we'll, uh, uh, you know, we'll introduce kind of, um, we'll move towards a kind of 10% preferential 
tax treatment. And basically what happened in 1980 was the cutoff date. And Ireland basically managed to secure an agreement that for 10 years, anybody who set up before the 80s would get a kind of 10-year tax holiday. And that's what led to Apple setting up here, for example. Uh, so you can imagine the politics and negotiations and a lot of the kind of game playing that would have went on behind closed doors, the, you know, the secret kind of side deals. Um, and then jump forward. So then you had a situation whereby US basically are foreign oil manufacturers had 10% and everybody else was paying higher rates. You know, Irish companies were paying higher rates. And the EU was like, well, that's not okay. That's, that's, that's kind of, it's a legal competition. You're giving preferential treatment to the US, to foreign investment, et cetera. And ultimately in the, in the mid nineties, when Rory Quinn was minister of finance, when it was the kind of arguably Ireland's first uh, and only social democratic oriented government and the Rainbow Coalition, Rory Quinn introduced the, the, the 12.5% rate. And that was, I think, if I'm not mistaken, in 96, right? So as you say, it has been around for a while since 96. Um, and the but again, there's lots been lots of different kind of changes beneath the surface. But ultimately, that headline 12.5% rate from the mid-90s uh, was introduced. Um, and it was focused on all kind of active trading income. So basically, any company in Ireland that's active to be trading, that's actively selling goods and services and can actually demonstrate that there is some kind of direction or management or activity taking place here will qualify for that 12.5% rate. Um, but jump forward to the present and in the meantime, in those 30 years, capitalism has obviously changed, intangible assets, and we can talk about it, but Ireland began to introduce lots of other kind of targeted tax incentives aimed at the onshoring and the movement of intellectual property. So, for example, the knowledge development box, the capital allowance for intangible assets, all these kind of targeted incentives. So just to kind of finish on this point, we have the 12.5% rate, which was introduced in the mid-90s. We've also got all these targeted incentives at kind of intellectual property. And at the international and global level and the EU, nobody kind of ever really was, was challenging the 12.5% rate. It was all that other stuff that was going on that was kind of bothering the European Union because it was creating an incentive for basically transnational companies to shift their profits out of other countries into Ireland, even though they may not actually have much of a sales presence here, meaning that it undermined the corporate tax base of other countries and it was perceived to be undermining their sovereignty. So again, very different narrative that you get pretty much outside of the island because the island narrative is, um, well, I would say it's particular to the island. Yeah, well, that's one way of putting it. So basically you know, kind of internationally and at an EU level, there was an unpicking of all of these tax incentives that you talk about, like the double Irish and the Irish sand, sandwich and all these, whatever yeah, they were called, yeah. all these different things. But now it's kind of got down to the, this brass tax really of the 12.5. But who does that 12.5 affect? Because the discourse tends only to focus on FDI and multinationals. Yeah, no, you're quite right. And just, just to kind of pick up slightly on, on your first point, it, like, so the double Irish and the double Irish with a Dutch sandwich, those schemes, um, you know, were in play for many years. People mm. and, you know, the government under pressure from the EU and international pressure shut, shut the double Irish scheme down in 2015. But just very simply for, for your listeners, the double Irish basically was a structure that allowed the following to take place. A company would set up register in Ireland. Uh, and then would set up another and register a company saying the Bermudas. And under Irish tax law, the company was tax resident in the Bermudas, but under US tax law, it was tax resident in Ireland. And the company in Ireland would effectively rent and pay royalties to the Bermuda company uh, for the use of their intellectual property. Um, and therefore, ultimately, for a good chunk of 10, 15 plus years, 
many of the most richest and most wealthiest corporations in the world were effectively able to avoid paying tax on, on, on their profits. And that was primarily made possible by Ireland, by the Irish state. And uh, in the meantime, those companies grew to massive, massive global mega corporate, like you huge conglomerates. Now, they will say it's not illegal, and it wasn't illegal because at some stage they would have had to repatriate the tax back to uh, to the USA. And in a sense, that's what they've done. That's what they did in response to Trump's uh, tax and jobs cuts reforms. And there's lots of kind of negotiations now taking place with Biden. But that's very important because the EU were really furious about this and European citizens were furious about it, but practically nobody in Ireland ever talked about it. <laughs> so, so, you know, that that in itself is, is kind of interesting. So who pays the 12.5%? I mean, this is important because most Irish companies who are trading will qualify for that 12.5% rate. Um, but of course, as you know, as we know, everybody knows, most companies, right, do not make a particularly large amount of money. Most companies are small enterprises that employ a couple of people and typically struggle to get along. Um, so I think in popular discourse, and I think even at the EU level, nobody would kind of, you know, really challenge the idea, particularly in the current environment where, you know, trading is difficult, um, that small companies should have to pay a, like more tax, basically, on their, on their profits. The purpose of the global tax reforms and shifting from 12.5% to at least a minimum 15% is targeted at those big companies with turnover of more than 750 million. But who pays the 12.5% rate in Ireland? And this is an interesting exercise. So if you look at the amount of taxes that are collected, corporate taxes that are collected in Ireland, um, it amounts to, let's say, I think about, uh, was it 15, 15 billion? Let me get this exact figure correct but i think so 12 and 12 and a half billion but it kind of there's a bit of volatility there if that's if, if that would suggest that there's about 200 billion of taxable profit in that's being declared in the irish economy but actually only 10 the 10 largest multinationals the 10 largest companies in ireland pay over 50 percent of that which is extraordinary that would mean 10 companies are paying right over 5 billion in taxes and then i think about 80 percent of the corporate tax take comes from just about 20 companies. So the corporate tax base is highly concentrated and it would suggest that there are big companies making big contributions to the exchequer. We don't know what that, who those companies are, but you know, you can do a bit of investigation and I would be able to give you a pretty good guesstimate who those companies are. For example, I'd be fairly confident that Apple is paying upwards of nearly a billion in taxes here, um, but they don't declare that because they declare consolidated global financial accounts at the global level, and all of their different subsidiaries don't actually have to declare uh, company uh, uh, their, their accounts. So the question of corporate transparency is really important here and having clear public country by country reporting. But to answer your question directly, all Irish companies that are trading pay the 12.5% rate, but most of them are barely struggling to make money. <laughs> and most of the corporate tax that is paid is paid by the 20, 30 uh, biggest corporations. And it's a very uh, it's a very concentrated tax take, which I think is which is is problematic because if just one or two of those companies happen to declare less revenue, well, then basically you're in big trouble because, you know, the corporate tax take equals one in five euro, 20% of total revenue, which is more, for example, than the primary, secondary and higher education budget. So this is the constant um, push and pull, even kind of ideologically or ethically, with people warning that if something changes with this tax rate, even though there's all this... Um, 
kind of guff said at, by government and, and politicians of all stripes that actually it's our highly educated uh, workforce that it that entices um, multinationals to Ireland uh, to work for them. But if there's any messing with that, then these companies will jump ship and therefore um the as you as you outlined that that corporate tax rate would be you know a couple of billion in the hole um and then there's other people saying no we need to actually be ethical here because although we say 12.5 or we you know the OCD is saying like 15% or whatever that they're not really paying 12.5 right like a lot of companies are paying are much lower because of, as you mentioned, um, the subsidiary aspect of companies and also then the intersection with tech, right? Because it becomes less clear what is actually being manufactured and what is actually being exported when you have an intangible product around services, um, you know, software, all that, you know, engineering, all that kind of stuff. So are they, are these massive companies let's take the tech companies, for example, are they actually paying 12.5%? No, no. Um, I think you're quite right. One has to distinguish between the headline rate and the effect of tax rate that these companies actually pay. And again, I would love to have access to uh, revenue data to be able to assess exactly how much of their income in Ireland is taxed at 12.5%, how much is taxed at 6% in the knowledge development box, what then is the actual effective rate you can do it just by looking at the kind of consolidated accounts of many of these firms and if it is indeed the case that the eu directive on country by country reporting and requiring corporates in ireland and other eu countries to declare at the national level what they actually pay there we'll have a really we'll have much better data to have to answer that question but it's often said there's different estimates but most Kind of a conservative estimate would suggest that it's around 10% or just under 10%. But if you look at, say, Apple, you know, Apple's global consolidated accounts would suggest, at least in the, the numbers that I've been looking at, that say from about 2000, uh, and say from the early 2000s up to about 2015, they were paying an effective corporate tax rate on their foreign earnings, not their US earnings, their foreign earnings of about 3.5%. Right, and given that Ireland is so central to their global wealth chain, as I call it, uh, you can imagine that you know Ireland would be a key part of that small percentage. We don't know exactly how much, but you can kind of figure it out just by, in different ways. So again, we we just don't know, and I think this is this is the really important uh, point that let's say this when the fifteen percent is agreed. And we don't know what maybe the EU will agree something more. Let's just assume that everybody says it'll be fifteen percent. And the kind of assumption is, well, that means, therefore, those companies are paying 12.5% and will have to pay 15%. Well, actually, as you say, we don't really know what about all these different loopholes. Does that mean that they, do all these different targeted tax incentives still apply? This is all up for negotiation. This is all the stuff that we worked out in the technical detail. And this is what I find interesting in Ireland. Most, all of the focus has been on this 15% thing. But actually, the 15% is really not the issue um, because... It's it, that's kind of what the pillar two of the OECD BEPS process, base erosion profit shifting process. It's not the headline rate that's really of concern to Ireland. It's pillar one because pillar one is a shift in the meaning of tax sovereignty. And pillar one basically says if and when it's agreed and the technical detail is worked out at the OECD, it basically means 
countries, that other countries will have the right, the sovereign right, for the first time ever in the one, over 100 years of corporate taxing history, to be able to collect taxes on corporate profit of companies that don't actually have a physical presence in their country. So for argument's sake, that might mean that France can, or say Germany, can tax and collect profits on the digital sales of Facebook or Google, even though they may not actually have any real physical presence, physical presence, because we know that they're present in these countries because they're digital. And it's the digitalization of the economy that basically that, that is the real issue here because we have tax laws and based around 1950s manufacturing, you know, and national jurisdictions where the world has completely changed. Um, that's where Ireland is in trouble because many of these companies are shifting their profits out of other countries into Ireland, into their, their, their subsidiaries here that don't actually really make their money here. But just because they house, say, some of their intellectual property here, they can claim that actually real activity is taking place here. So therefore, they will tax at that. And that's the real challenge, I think, facing Ireland. That's the real volatility. Ireland will lose revenue, not because of the 15% rate. It will lose revenue if and when other countries can basically stake a claim to some of the money that's here that really ought not be here because it belongs to other countries. And this is where I think behind the scenes, I would imagine the Department of Finance and government are aware of this. I imagine they're not stupid, right? They're happy enough to have the media talking about the 15% thing. Because this is what's what kind of algorithm will be agreed in the sense of how much will be allocated to labor, how much will be allocated to sales, how much will be allocated to intellectual property? Because I would imagine the Irish government will want a lot of it to be declared on the basis of intellectual property. Why? Because in 2015 to the present, they basically constructed a tax incentive scheme to get all these companies to shift their intellectual property out of 0% explicit tax havens in the kind of in the in the, in, in the British Virgin Islands and elsewhere into Ireland. And that's the whole incentive structure. That's why you have this massive onshoring of intangible assets into Ireland, hence leprechaun economics, hence the complete distortion of the national accounts, and hence why GDP means effectively nothing to real people in Ireland, because real GDP in Ireland is about two, what, 360 billion, whereas the modified gross national income of Ireland is about 215 billion. That's 145 billion difference. And that 145 billion is a lot of money. It's 145,000 million, which is basically something that is not even physically real. It is the intangible assets of very complex digital biopharma tech companies. What's going to happen? Because... Um, <laughs> The whole, this whole buzz, right, is, is seems to be um, particularly oriented around trying to finally grasp the nettle of these kind of unimaginably wealthy um, entities to pay their at least something gradually approaching a fair share of tax, right? And it also comes at the backdrop to the Pandora Papers and these ongoing investigative collaborations around the world that basically highlight these almost, you know, bordering on incomprehensible jiggery pokery around moving global capital around the place so that massive, massive profits don't end up in a country's exchequer and then don't get funneled through into public services and so on. So is the, you know, the global tax world shaping up to actually begin uh, to catch up with the um, creative uh, tax behaviours of these big companies. Is that actually happening now? I think to sort of, <clears throat> it, yes and no. My own hunch is that the kind of very creative uh, legal finance accountants that 
design and construct these complex tax structures are already probably two or three steps ahead <laughs> and already probably thinking about the next structure and the next scheme. And they're able to do it fundamentally because we still live in a world of nation states and we still live in a world of national tax uh, jurisdictions. And that allows basically transnational corporations that have a presence all over the world to create structures, create companies and sh- shift their assets and profit between them. I mean, 60% of global trade takes place within the supply chains of global multinationals. So we live in a world of big multinationals that are basically operating in multiple jurisdictions uh, and they can legally move and stuff around very easily. And the people who design those structures are very well paid and have a very strong incentive to kind of keep ahead of that game, so to speak. Um, However, clearly, I think in the OECD, the G7, the G20, and it's really the election of Joe Biden that has spurred things on. Nobody, I think, had expected the politics to move as quick as it did. I mean, for years, they've been saying in Brussels that the the writing is on the wall for Ireland's corporate tax rate. um, And there was always an expectation that this day would come sooner rather than later, but not as soon, I think. And that's because Joe Biden was elected and he made tax fairness, as you said, central to his campaign. And I think that discourse and narrative is important because it's shifting away from the narrative in Ireland where it's all about kind of, well, you know, we everybody does it and we can all do it and it's all about making money and it's kind of a kind of real cute tourism about it. But I think when you look at it through the lens that this is about tax justice, this is about fairness, this is about the inequality that comes, but who's paying what, etc. And Joe Biden has made it central. Now, so in that sense, he's trying to move. And if it and when we get to a stage, it looks like we will get to a stage, let's say there is a globally agreed minimum rate. Notwithstanding all the complexities and loopholes and the ability of these firms to kind of get ahead, that is a big step forward because that would begin the process of recognizing we need a global coordinated and in Europe, a European coordinated approach to the reality that capitalism doesn't have borders. Uh, And therefore, how do we adjust and adapt our tax systems to a world where capitalism doesn't have borders? The biggest obstacle to that are low tax jurisdictions like Ireland, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and of course, zero explicit tax havens and offshore locations. But then at the same time, and this I think is interesting because you mentioned the, the Pandora Papers, the Pandora Papers has also shown how central the US itself is to these global tax games because various states in the United States of America are central to the legal structures that take place. And basically you have lots of the likes of Delaware are doing what Ireland does multiplied by a hundred arguably, you know? Um, so this I think is going to put pressure on Joe Biden to say, Hey Joe, you know, you're talking about all these different tax havens and, you know, these Island economies, but actually within the U S and it's the U S that have not signed up to various OECD reforms, for example, on transparency and these kind of things. But at the same time, the Pandora papers has shown as you said, that look, the, the, what's interesting with the Pandora Papers, I think, is that unlike the Paradise Papers and unlike the Panama Papers, everything that's in Pandora is 100% legal. And it's showing, I think, citizens and the electorate and illustrating the democratic problem here that the likes of Tony Blair can basically buy property with an offshore company that's perfectly legal and avoid paying 300,000 euros in tax. That's just not available to 99.9% of the people. So I think it's just revealing the de facto distribution of resources and the de facto role of political power in society, which underpins, I think, a lot of the anger and the sense that things are really rigged and the system is rigged. Uh, And when it is legal, it becomes very clear that the system is rigged. Uh, And I think when it's illegal, you can kind of say, well, it's all illegal. We'll close that down. We'll do something about it. But when it's happening legally, uh, then I think it makes people even more annoyed. Mm. 
before you go, and thank you so much for, for your insights, what do you think is going to be the real or is there going to be a kind of a tangible or visible impact um, if this change comes to pass, which it looks like it will, um, for our corporate tax rate? Like, are the kind of doomsday scenarios laid out by FDI fetishists uh, going to come to pass? You know, will Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Google, whatever go well, we were here actually because this was quite handy for how we could move our money and our profits. And now you're making it a little bit harder. So actually we're going to go to any number of particularly developing economies who may be very enthusiastic about creating hospitable um, tax criteria and infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, I don't think the increase, if it goes to 15%, 15%, I don't think it's going to make much difference, to be honest. Um, and it's and as I mentioned, I don't think it is actually the pillar two headline minimum corporate tax rate that really matters for Ireland. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that means that Ireland probably will end up collecting more revenue, whether it's enough to offset the changes that are likely to take place in pillar one, as I mentioned earlier on, which means that a lot of the stuff that's declared here will have to be taxed elsewhere. That's really what will put the shit creek up, I think, the Irish government, because that means that there will be a bit of a, a black hole. Um, so the honest answer so sorry, Aiden, just to is, like, I don't know. Just, just, just on that, like, sorry, just to clarify yeah. that thing. So let's say, like, easy maths. Let's say... Um, uh, Apple posts profits or is paying tax um, in Ireland on profit and they have, they're paying it on a billion quid. Obviously they're paying it on more, but let's say they have a billion quid in profits that they made and they're paying, currently paying 12.5% on that. We know they're not. Let's yeah. just keep it simple. And um, France goes, um, well, we understand that you are, be- you you know, you have a, like a factory in Cork or whatever, or, or, or a, um, you know, a center in Cork, but actually there's loads of people using Apple software in France. And so therefore we are going to tax you uh, and we don't care where you live or where you're based or where your, you know, your things are being rooted to. Is that a, is that pillar one? Like, is that potentially going to happen? That's potential- and, and Ireland loses out on that tax. <clears throat> exactly. Exactly. And it would be amplified further if, for example, the EU ever got close to agreeing, which it wants to, and it's been on the cards for years, the common consolidated corporate tax base, which would basically mean that all large corporations would turn over more than 700 million, would declare at, in Brussels, let's say, you know, their assets, their profits. And basically the EU would say, well, here's how we're going to distribute that income and who gets the tax what of it. Ireland is terrified of this and has blocked it absolutely and kept it off the agenda but this is the concern that if we move in that direction that's kind of where the path is going so it seems to me that that's really the path uh, that we're moving on so i think the noise about the headline rate is really kind of just noise to be honest and i think it's really those other things about who actually has the sovereign right to tax what and how are the taxable rights going to be distributed in this digital world and how exactly can we agree like so if it is indeed the case it may well be the case that the Irish government wins the argument it says actually apple has its ip here full stop and that ip is really the value added of apple People buy Apple because they like that Apple sign, right? And that Apple brand is actually housed in a contract in Ireland. It's not a physical thing, it's a contract. And therefore, Ireland might be able to say, 
illegitimately. Therefore, we take 50% of, of what that is. And that, that's kind of the debate and negotiation, I think, that we're likely to move into. Um, but I think that's, that is the real issue for Ireland. Uh, and if that, all that does come to pass, it is probable that those bigger, bigger and deeper structural forms to global tanks will impact Irish revenue. So, uh, you know, I would be of the, the view that the corporate tax take is volatile, that they really ought not to be committing big, permanent public expenditures on the basis of that, and that we really ought to expand the, the, the tax base more widely, um, because I don't see it continuing indefinitely. Um, and it's a bit like what happened in previous years, where the government was relying on kind of pro-cyclical taxes associated with the house price bubble and consumption boom. I, I would view the corporate tax take in the, in, in the similar lens. Um, but I don't think change in the headline rate is likely to, to change that much. And it's a bit, because if you think about it, it's, it's kind of insulting in many ways to Ireland to say that all that matters is that headline rate, because, you know, there's this thing called place-specific social capital in economic sociology and, and, and economic geography, which basically shows that, look, you know, millionaires don't actually move that much. This kind of fright and fear that all the taxes and all these rich people are going to disappear is actually limited evidence for it. And why? Because those people are deeply embedded in the societies and the cities they live. I mean, I think the bigger threat to Ireland's foreign direct investment growth model is not the headline corporate tax rate. It's the fact that nobody has anywhere to live. Mm, yeah. And the cost exactly. of housing is so high. Yeah, so true. And especially... Um, the idea that all we need 80,000 or something more construction workers to build all of the new houses. I'm not sure where, where they're meant to live either. But before you go, uh, you were on the blower to Noam Chomsky yesterday. How's he doing? Oh, yeah. Well, he's doing great for a 92-year-old man. Uh, I couldn't believe uh, when I kind of looked into it in pre- preparation to chair the meeting uh, that, that and he's been around like since the, the 1930s and I mean what an intellectual history you know what, a, what and how much how prolific he is as well in terms of the amount of output in his books etc but uh yeah I mean he's still obviously as critical as ever about the global geopolitical environment and is as critical ever uh, as you on US foreign policy so it's always useful to have somebody saying things that most people are not willing to say well, thank you for saying all of those things uh, today that make things uh, much clearer for people, I think, and really, really important to be pointing to um, the much more, uh, well, it's a much more worrying, I suppose, context for Ireland um, if, if other countries can tax things where our I, where IP of, of, of tech companies in particular is based here. Although I do think that companies making the case for IP being based here and that that's the important thing is kind of a compelling argument and will be difficult, even though even yeah. though it might be bullshit or whatever, like it is in a compelling argument. Um, so that'll be definitely an interesting one to watch beyond the 15%. Thanks a million, Aidan. You're very welcome. Thank you. Getting in the sea this week, usually Andrea's domain, but I am going to put uh, more hotel development in the sea, of course. Obviously, Andrea is one of the people behind the No More Hotels um, creative and cultural movement. But as I was saying uh, at the top of the podcast, even though hotel development is getting in the sea, I do think that it is positive how engaged through anger, righteous anger, people are becoming. Um the temperature rising can be really overwhelming and feel stressful um, and depressing because you kind of are looking around the capital 
Um, in particular, of course, this is not unique to Dublin, but in particular, and going, oh my God, why are they getting rid of all of the nice things? Like, why are they doing this? The whole city is going to be turned into a hotel, blah, blah, blah. But when you consider the level of engagement that people have around that, I think that's going to start to to move things a bit. So, but it goes without saying, more hotels, you know, the idea of having another hotel in Temple Bar, the idea of having another hotel in Smithfield, um, at the cost of the things that apparently tourists come here to see uh, that are intrinsic to the character of the city, be that a cultural space, a really significant traditional music space like Cobblestone, or just the literal texture and character of the city uh, with regards to Merchant's Arch is is ridiculous. Um, I don't know how this tide can be stopped, but I do think more public engagement, more public pressure. Um, unfortunately, we have to do the hard work sometimes will uh, kind of potentially lead to some kind of political will to address the immunities crisis and to address the destruction of, of cultural venues. And Gary Gannon um, has spoken quite well about the cobblestone as, as well and, and the proliferation of hotels. So this feels like an old conversation. I feel like a broken record when it comes to it. But more hotel development in Dublin city centre is getting in the sea. And now it's bananas. This is a weird existential. It's bananas, I think, because it's a bit, a bit maybe it's a bit of more of a Sunday Soothe vibe, but I'm going to, I'm going to use it anyway. I, I just think we're in a strange limbo moment. I know we've been in many limbo moments right now, but I don't know if, if you know, some of you listeners have been kind of lucky enough to um, go abroad on a holiday or visit your families abroad or, or whatever over the last while since travel restrictions were, were somewhat eased. But um, having been in a, you know, in, in Ireland for 18 months and then uh, finally being able to go away uh, for a while, it felt like kind of stepping through, you know, the wardrobe in Narnia or something. And one of the things that I found really interesting is is seeing up close, like the difference in restrictions um, and how other cities are operating. So I was in, in Paris for a month and, you know, that you have to uh, show your COVID uh, pass thing everywhere obviously even when you're sitting outside but everywhere is pretty much open and places are at like capacity like cultural venues and and, and clubs and bars and all that kind of stuff um, although you are masked inside uh, if you're at gigs and things like that um, but it, it, it's so funny how ordinarily outside of a global pandemic when you go away that's kind of almost like your your non-real life. And when you're at home, it's your real life. But what I've found is because everything has just been just so bonkers that being in Ireland doesn't necessarily feel like real life, but being away did. And I don't know if <laughs> I'm having some kind of a breakdown <laughs> or existential uh, switcheroo, but that felt bananas to me. I'd be interested to see how other people who've managed to uh, take a trip if they're lucky enough to do so um, have experienced that as well it's it's really bizarre it's a bizarre switch of, of where we're at 
Um, so that's my weird bananas thing. I'm sure Andre is delighted with the uh, ridiculousness of that. But now for fave bits. Um, one of my big fave bits is a series of events that I'm uh, co-organising with friend of the pod, Connor Habib at the National Concert Hall. It's a series of events based around the idea of utopia. Um, and it's about improvised, spontaneous music. Um, we're doing a hip hop cipher. We have an amazing concert with loads of brilliant artists called Murmuration. We're doing a live podcast event with uh, Connor, myself and Andre and Connor. It's going to be called Everyone United. And we're also uh, doing an event about um, John Moriarty, the mystic and philosopher called Republic of Birds. We're also screaming, scre- screaming, um, maybe we'll be screaming, uh, screening uh, um, the documentary about his work called Dreamtime Revisited. And there's also going to be an eight hour sound immersion of amazing, like meditative escapist, beautiful, immersive music um, with No Place Like Drone from Dublin Digital Radio, Don Roscoe and Kate Butler. And they've also commissioned artists for um, new sound pieces for that as well. That one is free, by the way. So if you go to nch.ie and check out the Refraction season, the Utopia season is in that, the Utopia series. And we're also, myself and Connor are also going to be talking about it more on the pod to let you know why we're reimagining, we're trying to reimagine what live music feels like um, once the restrictions have eased. My other fave bits, um, once before I go at the gate, Philly McMahon's new play, so amazing to be back in the theatre the other night and just like vibes, you know, just to see live art and um, to be back in with an audience. It was a total pleasure. So check that out. Kin on RTE. Um, so I missed it when it when it when it started. So I've been catching up and I'm caught up now. It's so good. Like it's so good. The cast is amazing, the writing is amazing, the like atmosphere in it is really good. I'm pretty obsessed with it. I actually think it's it's really, really fantastic. I know I'm kind of joining a chorus of like the half a million people who are watching it every Sunday, but I'm really, really enjoying it. Um And yeah, as I mentioned, like the restriction lifting, I think there is excitement building around that October 22nd date and fingers crossed everything goes well and we can be back dancing and hanging out and um, refilling the social and cultural and euphoric well uh, that has been so depleted. So this podcast is produced by Andrew Mang and a Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design. This week's tuna chicken roll, we may have played this before. I've kind of wiped my mind. Um, but it's worth it's worth uh, having again as a as a tuna chicken roll. It's caribou. You can do it. I've been Una Malali. Andrea Horn is away and we'll be back next week. This has been United Ireland. And that was Ireland's precious corporate tax rate potentially no more for a while.
Do it. 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 You know, you know, you know.